You are listening to the Bondzilla Podcast. The Bondzilla Podcast is a bi-monthly analysis of two of cinema's longest-running franchises, James Bond and Godzilla. This week, James Bond teams up with Agent Triple X of the Russians, and she's a woman? It's 1977's The Spy Who Loved Me. James Bond. Hello, everybody. Hello, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, people of all ages that listen to this podcast. Welcome to another spectacular edition of the Bonzilla Podcast. I am Nick. And I am Will. And, and uh, you know, every now and then we uh, we have a little kind of like pre-thing because, uh, you know, we edit in, do some of the editing of like the music and mm-hmm. stuff for for the show. Um, so we kind of like wing a little opening and, and sometimes i kind of wish that we we put we just, those we in just put that because in that, there, today's right there. was was very uh very whimsical yeah i i, I felt yeah it, um, it was nice yeah. i agree all right movie time movie time yes. this week we are back on the bond side of things with 1977's the spy who loved me and uh let's get started yeah. are you ready sure all right yeah all right uh so uh her name was Elania. That's not her name. What? I thought we were talking about the spy who loved me. Oh, the spy who loved you. Me. Oh, yeah. you. Okay. Yeah. The uh, All right. The Russian spy. Russian or yeah. Jamaican. I always confuse the accents. Could be either one. Yeah. yeah. You know, they're very similar from very similar parts of the world. They look yeah. very similar. Very, well. very ethnic, but you can't tell what. Like, mm. kind of like a Mila Kunis. Like, mm. you're something. There's something there. Uh, so, yes. Yeah, so let, let's talk about the spy, spy who loved James Bond. Yes. As it were. All right. So 1977, The Spy Who Loved Me. So once again, let's just get back to where we uh, left off the Bond franchise. It was in a bit of a legal tangle up with the Harry Saltzman leaving. Uh, so it is the longest gap between Bond films, which is from 1974, which is the last time uh, that we saw a Bond film in The Man with the Golden Gun to 1977. And three years doesn't seem like that long of a gap traditionally, but you got to remember these was again Eon is only set up to make Bond films and they had been pushing them out one you know one a year maybe two every two years so the fact that there was a three year gap was seemingly a big deal just in terms of uh being untraditional and kind of showing that Eon was kind of in a little bit of trouble here yeah. to an extent I mean, again like I said Eon is only making Bond movies and if that's three years you know where it's between the Bond films that's mm-hmm. three years of them not doing anything man uh so they did have to deal with Saltzman uh you know not only Saltzman leaving and Saltzman selling his uh stock and his percentage in the Bond franchise to United Artists uh, but they had to deal with the legal tangle-ups of the banks that uh, Saltzman promised his stock to and all that sort of stuff. Uh, but banks. eventually it was all settled out. And uh, Cubby now stands alone as the head of Eon Productions. <laughs> and really for the first time... In yeah, his- I'm just imagining he stands alone like in his office. They took everything, including the desk, and he's just standing alone (laughs) in his office. He's like, what to do with Bond? And uh, it's interesting for Cubby because this is really the first time in a very long time that he is on his own as a producer. Because even before he made the deal with Saltzman to produce the Bond movies, he had that other producer uh, that famously told him that the Bond uh, rights weren't worth Jack. Uh, So Cubby really is on his lonesome here. And he has that Eon support team uh, that really helps along, along the way. 
So it is now up to him to choose what the next Bond movie is going to be. Uh, and he views one of Ian's books and a, a title he's always liked, the title being The Spy Who Loved Me. There is just one problem with his choice, though. In Ian Fleming's original contract, and now which would be the contract with the Fleming estate, it is stipulated in the contract that while they are allowed to use the title The Spy Who Loved Me, they are not allowed to use any of the plot or the characters from the book. Right. And this is because uh, Ian Fleming felt that The Spy Who Loved Me was his worst book. In fact, he took it off the shelves almost immediately after oh. he published it. Kind uh, of like a, a bit of a Lucas and the Holiday Special action yeah. going on. So uh, The Spy Who Loved Me, the book, is a Bond book that's from the perspective of the Bond girl. And it was a book that was reviewed in the sense it, it, that... And it, it was a very thin book. It was his shortest book. Oh! I, I guess. Got him. I, I actually don't... I think that might be true, actually. <laughs> Uh, but it was a book that was in criticism of it, uh, basically showed that Fleming did not really know how to write female protagonists. Wait, wait, let me get this straight. A Bond story from the girl's point of view is not interesting. I mean, I I can't see why that would cause any controversy at all. (laughs) Yeah, it's, uh, it's quite a shocker. So, but, but basically what this means is that for the first time, uh, for the Eon team, they have to craft an original quote-unquote original bond story they are still taking elements from the fleming novels um cubby gets the inspiration by a character in the book spy who loved me named horror uh who is described as having metal braces for teeth and while they don't use the character horror specifically they do gain inspiration for the henchman jaws which we'll take uh talk about a little bit uh later when we talk about the casting um, but basically for the team, this is a very interesting dynamic because normally you had like at least the base plot of the book that you would take, uh, and then maybe alter it and, and change it a little bit. But now they, they really had an original, a, a blank slate. What were we going to do with the Bond franchise? So Cubby looks, you know, he, he sees the perception around, uh, man with the golden gun. It wasn't well reviewed. It didn't do well at the box office, quote unquote, as we said before, uh, and what would be the way to get audiences back involved with James Bond? What would, what would get them to go back to the theater? And in the grand tradition of what we kind of see in Hollywood these days, it's the return of something nostalgic. Uh, so Cubby's original plan is to bring back Spectre and Ernst Stravo Blofeld okay. as the main villains. Uh, so have more finally <laughs> take on Spectre and okay. Blofeld and, and return to that great Bond villain that... That, that we all know. That we all know and love specific no, I, I characters. Didn't, I didn't say that. I said that we all know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so they write that first script with the intention of putting Blofeld in the movie. The problem is, as soon as the first draft is finished, they get a injunction from the lawyers of one Kevin McClory. So at this point, Kevin McClory, as you remember, producer of Thunderball and writer of Thunderball and that incredible man that made Thunderball. um, (laughs) Of the incredible movie, Thunderball. Thunderball. (laughs) Uh, At this point, he is trying to make his own Bond movie using the Thunderball rights because he had, again, that 10-year period from 1965 to 1975. He co-owned those rights with Saltzman and Broccoli. And now, after 1975, he's back in full control of those rights. And he feels that uh, the 
new script by the Bond team is infringing on his rights to use Blofeld. Mm-hmm. So he basically sends them like, if you put this out there, I'm going to sue you. And Brock, nice. Classy. Broccoli believes that he has a case to still use Blofeld, but because they had just gone through all the litigation with Saltzman, they decided really not to pursue it. It was like, it, it, we can figure out something else. There was discussion of maybe like making it <laughs> so, sounds like a early day scrolls situation yeah. for Marvel. <laughs> um, there was talk about maybe having a storyline where uh, a bunch of uh, terrorists take over Spectre and make it something else, or just creating a new organization. But they mm-hmm. felt that might be too confusing, so they decided to go back on other ideas, and this is where they uh, came up with the idea of the villain of the film, Carl Stromberg, mm-hmm. uh, and the idea that kind of was inspiration by this idea that they had uh, for another Bond movie about a super tanker, or a tanker that swallows boats, uh, which would become a, a tanker that swallows submarines. Because they're like, how do we top a spaceship that eats other spaceships? A boat that eats other boats. Exactly. It is interesting, though, because... Uh, it, it is funny. Like, so you and I are big followers of, like, you know, comic book superhero movies, mm-hmm. uh, uh, particularly the Marvel yeah. universe and the Marvel going ons. And uh, you and I, you know, off mic, have uh, always followed and and have some inside inside uh, baseball knowledge of the going ons between Marvel's uh, legal. It's, claim and stake over certain characters from the comics right because because they co-own with uh you know fox and sony have other marvel rights yeah and how those all work so sony owning spider-man or the cinematic spider-man and just like you know what what characters that they can use and things like that and that has been and ever since marvel has become very famous that has all come to the forefront but it is interesting going back and seeing with these movies um we're seeing this with james bond right now Mm -hmm. um with these specific characters and what characters you can and can't use. We've seen that with the Godzilla franchise uh, several times with, you know, using King Kong and getting the rights, keeping the rights to King Kong, things like using Frankenstein and like, oh, we're going to use Frankenstein. Oh, we don't own, you own Frankenstein or we can use Frankenstein, but you can't use the Frankenstein that you want to use. Yeah. So it's just interesting to see these early, um, I mean, it's always... There's always been like this big conversation about public domain and everything, mm-hmm. but it is interesting to see these early examples of uh, film rights uh, that of companies and estates or whatever owning char- yeah. fictional characters. No, it, what you it, could it, it is very interesting, and for me, it's also very interesting to consider the what the Bond franchise would have been had they been able to continue using Spectre, mm-hmm. uh, because again, I know a little bit more about where we're going, but. You know, up until now, from now up until uh, you know the 2015 Spectre movie, um, there really it, it's all every villain Bond villain from here on out is unique. There's really no returning. Well, that's Bond a, that's going ahead a little bit, but that's actually a good thing to point out. Like this whole issue with Spectre, I I'm not sure if it was resolved, but only kind of came to a con- some sort of conclusion with, recently. It, it came to a conclusion with McClory's death. Honestly, yeah. like that's where it, I mean, we'll talk about oh, a little bit more because basically okay, okay. He, right. uh, he died, and then the estate just made the deal with Eon. So because it was always something that was McClory's passion. And Interesting. We're gonna talk about more McClory as the podcast goes on. We'll, we'll get little updates on what he okay, does. Cool, cool, so cool. Right. Um, because he he will end up making another Bond movie, and that's what we'll talk about at some point. Yeah, even after his death. 
uh, yeah yeah it's like it's like a jigsaw thing mm-hmm. where he just leaves like a tape <laughs> like that directs an entire movie. I will sue you if you use. <laughs> oh, I was saying he just plays it oh. every day on production. He was that smart and yeah. that planned ahead. Um, so uh, the film needs a director as well. Yeah. Uh, this is a film that needs a director. They've kind of starting to Preferably figure out. Preferably a living one. Yeah. Uh, and this one was alive at the time. Uh, he's not alive anymore. Uh, so because Guy Hamilton has left. Mm-hmm. And it is time for them to figure out where they want to go next. And uh, in the tradition of Bond, they go back to somebody who's already been a director on the Bond franchise. And that is uh, the man who directed You Only Live Twice. Ashiro Honda. <laughs> Lewis Gilbert. Oh, okay. Yeah, they, uh, they kind of, you can see, they kind of sound similar. Yeah. So early on in the, in the writing and production of this movie, when Gilbert signs on, uh, there's a major meeting that happens between Gilbert, Broccoli, and Roger Moore, who is, of course, returning as James Bond for this movie. Uh, and Gilbert brings up the fact that he felt he, he's viewed the previous two Bond movies with Moore, and he likes Moore as an actor, but he feels like the issue is is that the writers and producers and the films are trying to make Moore too much like the Connery Bond. Uh, and Gilbert, uh, which... Gilbert suggests that they go back to the book Bond, the very English, gentlemanly, smooth, humorous Bond, uh, that that kind of not as much the physical nature of Bond that you see with the Connery films, but kind of more the, the you know, like the, the charmer Bond. Yeah, yeah. And Moore, who's already kind of playing this interpretation anyways, as we mentioned in Live and Let Die, he, he kind of views that Bond character as someone who has a license to kill but doesn't like to use it, likes the charm, he, he he also is pushing Broccoli to be like, let's kind of do this. Let's kind of backtrack from that. Because he, he doesn't like doing the, that kind of physical stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he likes being the charmer. Sounds I lazy think he, to me. I think he, he, <laughs> he really enjoyed that. And Broccoli agrees. And so that's a major focus of the film mm-hmm. is trying to kind of capture the book bond and, and, and make it more Moore's bond as opposed to making it Connery's bond as played by Moore. Uh, that's kind of how they feel. Uh, so with that, we kind of are set in our vision. Let's get to the cast of this movie. Of course, Roger Moore returning as Bond, Lois Maxwell back as Moneypenny, uh, Bernard Lee as M, and Desmond Leland as Q, of course. Uh, but we have some new The cast. gang's all here. Uh, we, the gang's all here. And the first one I want to mention is just uh, not maybe a major role, uh, but one of the major players going forward for the next couple of films. Bruce, is, the shark from uh, Jaws. Was that Bruce in there? The shark from Jaws. It could be. Could be. Yeah. It was filming at the same time. <laughs> okay, so maybe, maybe not. Yeah. Maybe, maybe he's like, maybe that was like the Bruce auditioned for the role, but yeah. like didn't get it, and then like Spielberg picked him up. It's like I got you. Yeah, I got. I, I like the shark thing. in this is like the Liam Hemsworth of sharks, <laughs> <laughs> and then Bruce is the Bruce Chris. is the Chris. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, this is a, a little bit of a major player going forward. Is this is a debut of Walter Gotel okay. as uh, KGB head General Gogel. Uh, who uh, makes his first appearance in this movie, but you will see him a lot uh, going forward uh, throughout the Moore era and okay. even uh, beyond the Moore era as a character. Okay, all right, interesting. Um, so uh, we have. let's talk about our main Bond lady in this film because uh, she is uh, one of the major players and an inspiration for the title, mm-hmm. uh, Spidey Love Me. Uh, Anya Asimova uh, is played by a woman named Barbara Bach. Bar- Barbara Bach. Barbara Bach. Yes. Uh, so Barbara's uh, casting was very interesting because uh, they knew that they they had to get a great female performer for this role because it, in a lot of ways it was kind of portraying 
you know, a Russian spy, like Bond's equal, uh, you know, uh, probably one of the more major female roles that any of these Bond movies have had, uh, you know, uh, other than maybe like Tracy at this point. Um, and they were really struggling to find someone they felt like really fit the role. And it actually got up to, they were four days from principal photography starting and they had not casted Anya yet. Uh, and then a producer at United Artists uh, suggested that uh, uh, he had a friend, Barbara, who uses like, oh, she's cool. I, I, I think she's really, really good. Uh, if you could find a role for her. And her expectation based on what the producer had told her about auditioning is like, oh, they're going to find you like some role, like like the role of like the henchman that of uh, Stromberg's, like the, the one that takes him out or something like that, or the, uh, the hotel receptionist. That's something a little small. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she auditioned and they just felt like, that's her. That's it. Mm-hmm. That's perfect. So that's what they casted her. And they're like, okay, so you're going to be the uh, second leading role in this movie. And she was like, what? Really? Uh, and so uh, this was a major break. This was her major break cool. in, the, in the industry. Um, you have Kurt Jurgen, a uh, French actor, as uh, Carl Stromberg. Uh, a good friend of Lewis Gilbert's and Lewis Gilbert's suggestion. A uh, very smart man, could uh, act in five languages, and uh, he apparently had a lot of fun kind of being the Von villain. He, he really embraced uh, and uh, enjoyed playing that role. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, we, of course, we get Richard Keel uh, as Jaws. Uh, very uh, opposite of um, Nick Knack, where Nick Knack in our last film, Our Henchman, was about three feet tall. Richard Keel in real life is seven foot four. Mm-hmm. Uh, at that time, he was most famous for his role in The Longest Yard. Of course, he would go on to play roles in uh, Adam Sandler movies such as Happy Gilmore later in his career. Um, Cubby t- took him to lunch one day and he said, like, you know, he t- talked about the characters. We're not sure if you're going to have these big metal teeth yet or, or what are you going to do? Uh, but we really want you to play this role. And Richard Kill's like, I want to be in a Bond movie. That sounds like fun. I get to be a henchman. Mm-hmm. Uh, problem was, is that uh, so he has to wear these prosthetic metal teeth yeah. for the entire production, uh, which were was was designed actually by uh, Stanley Kubrick's daughter. Uh, were designed the teeth for this movie. He didn't. She didn't want him to be. She said uh, she didn't want to be sharp because he knew he had to wear them and it might be dangerous if the sheep were sharp. So she she kind of more based it on like cogs and kind of the grinding yeah, of yeah. metal. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the teeth were very uncomfortable. Uh, in fact, Richard could only wear the teeth about thirty seconds at a time before they were like he had to just spit them out. One of the more interesting challenges of the role was that a lot. Of, you know, he was very in pain for a lot of mm-hmm. using the teeth. But a lot of times he was playing comedy. You know, he has a lot of comedic moments in this film. Yeah. And he felt that it was really interesting, kind of the dynamics between him having this pain, but yet having to give a look of, of, of comedy and kind of that focus. And it was a real challenge for him as an actor to mm-hmm. do that. Uh, last role I want to mention uh, in this preamble is just Michael Billington. Uh, he has a very small role in this movie as uh, Anya's boyfriend at the beginning of the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh just want to point him out because he was one of the uh, backups if Roger Moore didn't want to play Bond in Live and Let Die. He was one of the ones that uh, could have played Bond. Uh, so it's just interesting sometimes, you know, you get to see, you know, just actors that audition for those major roles and you see them at a smaller role at a different date. Mm-hmm. So it's very interesting. Cool. Um, so we just have a couple production stories. Oh. Uh, some of the bigger production stories. I like I like a good, I like the good production stories. All right, so the first one we're going to talk about is the first thing that was shot for the movie, which is the opening skiing sequence mm-hmm. of the film. So the skiing sequence, opening sequence, was the last thing that was, uh, first thing that was shot, but it was the last thing that was uh, conceived for the movie. 
uh, because they were trying to figure out what, what's the spectacular, what's the spectacular thing we can do to open the movie. And Michael G. Wilson, again, the future producer of the franchise, uh, who is still kind of an, uh, a, a moderate producer at this time at Eon, uh, sees an advertisement in a magazine of someone jumping off a cliff, essentially. So they track down the guy who's in the advertisement, which is a, a uh, man named Alex Sylvester. Mm-hmm. And he admits that that specific shot was just trick photography. But he would be willing to do it. Like, he actually thinks he could do it. He knows the perfect mountain, Mount Asgard in Canada, um, which is a mountain that you can only helicopter to the top to. You can't climb it. Uh, he says, like, yeah, just give me, a, give me the parachute. Uh, we'll, we'll go up there. And Gilbert and John Glenn, who's the assistant director on this movie, uh, both are kind of like, this is a little dangerous, but if he thinks he can do it, let's do it. Uh, so Sylvester does the jump. He's got one take on this, mm-hmm. essentially. And the jump is basically what you see in the movie. Mm-hmm. It's that one long take. The reason it's one long take is that they had four cameras on him, and three of the four cameras couldn't find him when they were shooting. So <laughs> right, they saw him okay. and they just kind of lost him in the thing. Okay. But the but that one camera has that perfect shot. And it actually, I think, like is really effective in the film. It's just that perfect long take of him falling out and the parachute opening the Union Which Jack. Which it makes sense because it's very odd in the final product. Like I think it works, mm-hmm. but it is definitely odd that there was clearly no other coverage. Yeah. Of that shot, yeah, like when so you see just, it play out. Yeah, three yeah. of the four cameras just couldn't find him. Uh, but that was almost another tragedy. Because if you look closely in the movie, yeah. you'll see that one of the skis, as it's falling off, uh-huh. almost hits the parachute, which would have <laughs> punctured the parachute and, and been a lot of trouble. Yeah, he could have died. Yeah, so but the shot turned out perfectly, and uh, everybody was happy with it. Well, and not perfectly. The ski almost punctured, yeah, punctured almost him. perfectly, but yeah. perfectly in the sense that the ski didn't puncture. There you go. Yeah. Uh, some uh, some would say not Paris, dying is pretty perfect. Uh, Sylvester uh, was paid uh, three hundred thousand dollars for the stunt, and eventually got a big bonus when it was completed. Um, okay. Also, just want to mention real quick uh, the. Uh, United Artists doubles down on this movie. They're like they're they're going all in. They still think the Bond franchise is. Uh, a viable option for them. Mm-hmm. So this is the largest bond uh, budget of all time uh, at the, up to this point, $14 million. Mm-hmm. Cool. Um, cool. So they're, they're all in. Yeah, they're all in. Uh, another one I want to mention real quick. Another little production story is Ken Adam, our production designer has mm-hmm. been on this movie a couple times. Uh, he, on this movie? On this A movie, couple times? He's been on a couple of a bond movies. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you'll remember he built that very big volcano set. Uh, for you only live twice. One of the best sets yes. in a bond. This actually makes sense because I actually go. This is skipping ahead a little bit. Uh, I compared this movie as having some of the best bond sets. Yes. Since that movie. Yeah. And uh, so one of the things that they had to build the interior of this, uh, you know, super tanker. Yeah. For the that that's exactly the, the what I thought of. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so they needed to find a set where they could house these this big water and these big submarines and this like kind of massive scope of a set. And there was no real-life location that they could go to. So Ken Adam was once again designed, uh, designated to design the stage. And Ken Adam decides that he doesn't want to make the same mistake that he did on You Only Live Twice. Because that volcano set was very impressive, but it was essentially a one-time set. You couldn't use it for anything else. And if 
uh, you know, once it was done, it was it was done. Mm-hmm. So he talked to Cubby, and Cubby talks to Pinewood Studios, and they make an agreement to build a brand new stage at Pinewood Studios uh, for a total of $2 million that will house this set and be able to be used at other productions. Uh, it will be christened the 007 stage mm-hmm. uh, at Pinewood Studios. And he builds this massive set, as you see in the movie. It's a big, huge set. And one day, Ken Adam is going up to the uh, cinematographer of this movie and says, okay, so what do you think? Can, can you light this? And the cinematographer goes, I don't think I can because I'm losing my eyesight. And the stage is so massive uh-huh. that I just I can't see to the end of it. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> so now... So Ken Adam is needs someone to help light this set. So with the help of his art department daughter, Adam gets Stanley Kubrick to come in and secretly what? What? light the super tanker set. No. Yeah. Stanley Kubrick came on the set of a Bond film yeah. to basically be the temporary cinematographer? Yeah. That's that's in, that's insane. That's crazy. So this co- may be this is blowing my mind. Yeah. By the way, because because uh, Kubrick agreed only if he was able to come in and set on secrecy. He didn't want people like to be like oh, this ma- major director was there. And Adam's like, you'll you'll come in. We'll we'll just kind of go around. And 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 Kubrick suggests to basically uh, make. Uh, install floodlights <laughs> into the central design of the super tanker and basically have the set light itself. Um, you know, it's funny because I was walking by. Uh, you, you know, you do some research using like some of the special features and yeah. such. And I and I walked by at one point and I saw an image of Stanley Kubrick, and I was like, oh, that must be interesting. It must be referring to some work he did or, or mm-hmm. something. It never occurred to me, even in that context, that he had any hands, yeah. anything hands on to do yeah, with a I fucking mean, Kubrick Bond and Adam movie. had worked with uh, on uh, you know uh, Doctor Strangelove, and, uh-huh. and and Kubrick was a fan of like the Bond films. Really? Uh, essentially, yeah. I mean, it, just in terms of he liked just kind of the bigness of him. In fact, it's, I mean, again, Kadam was hired for Dr. Strangelove on the basis of Dr. No. Yeah. And just the set design of that movie. Uh, so, but Kubrick uh, helps come up with the lighting and it's a big success. And uh, Adam, to this day, really credits uh, uh, Kubrick for making that work. And he's blind. Yes. Now. <laughs> just, uh, and he's blind. Two Last quick things, okay. Because I don't really have anything to fit them in, but I thought these were funny. Okay. One is that uh, the crew hated working in Egypt because mm-hmm. the food was terrible, the people were terrible to them. <laughs> it was not a fun time. Uh, but one of the major things that does happen is that, which is understandable, because arguably this movie is not really great to the people he- of Egypt. Yeah. <laughs> hearing, uh, hearing this, uh, hearing that they have a bad time, Broccoli actually flies down from London to Egypt and makes the entire crew a big Italian spaghetti dinner. Uh, and this was one of the moments where the crew was like, okay, broccoli is, is going to be okay. As like, you know, if for all the worries that broccoli himself had, it was whether he could lead this team by himself without a saltsman at his side. Mm-hmm. A lot of the crew really took that as saying like, Cubby's the man to lead us. Uh, and the last thing also having to do with the Egypt segment. Uh, so there's a, there's a scene in the movie where Bond's sneaking around the pyramids, right? And, there's a moment where you you see him come around a corner and hide, essentially, like on the other side of a rock. 
and then you see Jaws. Well, no, they're they're in Egypt. Yeah. Hey oh oh. So they shot that, but they didn't have Bond at the little rock mm-hmm. as they as they established. And once they started editing the film, they realized that, that they had to have Bond at that at that moment because that's just for continuity's sake. But they couldn't get more to come in and, and green screen it because it was really small. They couldn't really figure out how they were going to do it. Mm-hmm. So they go through all the production stills of the movie, find <laughs> a perfect still image of Bond peeking around a corner and just place it on the screen. So if you look really closely at that segment for like seven seconds of screen time, yeah. it's just a still image of Bond yeah. looking around a corner. I just thought that that was really incredible. I think it's funny because that is almost equivalent to the technical shortcut in Godzilla Raids again of there's the helicopter shot of Godzilla and it's clearly just a toy. Yeah. Godzilla. Just yeah. like so obvious. And, and, and man, well, you, when you got some cinematography on point. I know Kubrick didn't, you know, do that scene specifically, yeah. but when you're taking cues from, from that, from Stanley you, Kubrick, yeah, yeah. Then, then you can have maybe this is cheated like a little bit. 1970 Stanley Kubrick too. This is like height. This is like shining right. era. This is right. shining era Kubrick. This yeah. is the height of his career. And with that, I think uh, it, that's the story. All of things considered. Spy Who Loved Me. Pretty reasonable production. Pretty reasonable. Yeah, nothing pretty... too crazy. Yeah, yeah. Nothing I mean, too... the legal stuff is the most interesting stuff. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I think. I think I'm gonna have fun talking about this. I one. think I'm gonna. I'm gonna have a great time. Yeah. So, All right. Are we ready to keep on moving forward? I got nothing else to say. All well, right. I have many things to say, but it's actually about this movie, right? Like, you, you get what I'm saying. The spy who loved me. Did you kill him? When someone's behind you on skis of 40 miles an hour trying to put a bullet in your back, you don't always have time to remember a face. No business and your people get killed. We both know that. So did he. It was either him or me. The answer to the question is yes. I did get him. Then... When this mission is over, I will kill you. And we're back, ready to talk about the spy who loved me. Yes, yeah, I'm I'm, I'm ready to talk about this one. I'm I'm really ready for talking about this one. So, all right, so we open up. Um, Elizabeth Hurley is a fembot. Um, Austin Powers, you know, he wait, has to go wait. back. At, what, what? I think think you've got the the spy who shagged me. That's a, that's, a that's not what we're talking about. That's a different movie. Oh, did you watch the Did you watch this movie? I mean, I watched. Did the you Austin think Powers Stanley and- Kubrick? <laughs> <laughs> did you think Stanley Kubrick did secret cinematography on the spy who shagged me? Oh man! If only, man. If only, man. One day, one day we'll get to talk about those Austin Powers flicks. I think we will. Yeah. I think that'll be something again. A little bit teasing. We're gonna do some Fleming Which, in the future. By we're- the way, real real quick. Those movies have only gotten better <laughs> over after, time. After, especially after You're doing watching this, this I had the exact same idea. Uh, okay, I, I do have thoughts on this movie. I have lots of thoughts on this movie. Um, you, 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 how do you want to do this? Who, who wants to go first? Because I have the overall kind of go, thesis. Go, you usually on this movie. let me give an overall of the Godzilla film, so I'm going to give you okay, right. here. I'll let you give your overall thoughts on the spy who loved me. Um, I think that in the most loving way possible. I mean this. I think that the Bond franchise uh, has just beaten me down. <laughs> At this point. 
it was the immediate thought like when we were coming to the up on the closing credits and I found myself kind of accepting it even though there's something in the back of my head that says I shouldn't accept that <laughs> but I do and uh it, it's 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 definitely still sexist just a little bit not as egregious here yeah. Uh, oh, we'll talk about it, but this is clearly like the 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 best that the Bond franchise treats its female characters, and that's not saying true, much. True, true, yeah, that's not um, saying much, but it's saying something. It's uh, it's incredibly racist. <laughs> it's really it's really dumb. <laughs> but you know me, I like dumb. Mm-hmm. I like my dumb in these movies. I yeah. want it to be so. That's that's a big positive for me. Um, and James Bond's an asshole. <laughs> He is. Yeah, no, he's he is a very core part of his character. Yeah, and for some reason, I mean, I think everything I feel about this movie can be designated to Roger Moore's James Bond. Everything about this guy, my immediate response to him is asshole <laughs> or dick. Yeah. Sometimes douche. Rod Johnson. Yeah, but <laughs> a dick or Rod or Johnson. Johnson? <laughs> um um, obscure <laughs> reference, <laughs> kind of. Um, but but I I so mostly asshole. But I I could not help but thinking like, yeah. But what a charming guy. Yeah, which is not good Mind for me to think. Yeah, so, uh, but overall, um, I had a good time with with this movie. Um, and I will give kind of where it ranks towards the end of the episode. But uh, yeah, I, I definitely I'll give where it ranks right now. I think it. I think it's solid. I oh. I, I decided during this viewing. This is my favorite Bond movie of all Whoa, time. Okay. All I, right. <laughs> I, we'll talk about it a lot more, and we'll talk about the specifics. There's a lot of reasons for that. But this is, this is one of the go-tos for me, and for a lot of people in the Bond franchise. This is one of the favorites. Mm-hmm. And uh, this, this ranks up there in terms of how many times I've seen it with Gold, uh, Eye and Goldfinger and From Russia with Love. And I think in a previous age, like I've said before on this on this podcast, I, I've been afraid to admit my my enjoyment of the more films only because you know there's that perception around them that they're silly and they're stupid and they're dumb and they're not like the serious Connery Bonds or you know the the you know, the Craig Bonds or anything like that. But I, I I truly believe that this is not only one of my favorite Bond film; it, it's one of my favorite films ever. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I have a lot of reasons for that. And we'll, let's start talking about the film. Yeah. Um. So what? What are? Uh, what? How? How should we start this? Uh, there's a lot to talk about. Yeah, I mean, I guess. Uh, what was the movie? What was the one with the spaceships? Was that uh, Japanese Island? What was that movie with the volcano? Uh, you only live twice. You only live twice. Yeah. So much like you only live twice, and but instead of a spaceship eating other spaceships, there's we got boat boats eating, eating oh. submarines, mm-hmm. and that's a big problem. Yeah. Because said submarines. Have nuclear weapons on them. They do. Um, and Bond the needs nukes. to figure. He needs to figure that shit out. If they take all the nukes, how are they going to defeat Godzilla? Exactly. <laughs> that's the that that should have been the plan. <laughs> um, uh, say, actually, that's not a bad plan. It's like if Godzilla exists in your world, and that's the only way to defeat Godzilla. So you steal. The, I can see the bad guys stealing the nukes, then releasing Godzilla, getting into attack. And then holding a monopoly over the world, we just keep coming up with great Godzilla, Godzilla movies. We yeah. gotta pitch the Toho at some point. Yeah, yeah we should. <laughs> uh, but yeah, um, so it, yeah. it fits Super Tanker, and like much like we only did twice. There's a similarity. It's both American and Russian tanker uh, submarines that are taken. 
Uh, of course, we get to see M's office mm-hmm. uh, and 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 he, you know and that sort of thing and the British government, but we also get to see the Russians and, yeah. and their side of things. Which, for some reason, the Russians live in this weird Dracula castle. So this like- was this was a Ken Adam decision because <laughs> if you he said like if you notice M M's office, it's very closed and cluttered, and there's lots there, and he wanted to make you know the. Uh, the Russian office is a lot more open space and a lot more kind of using traditional Russian architecture and that sort of stuff. Uh, probably the most interesting selling point of the movie mm-hmm. is that uh, the so what is it that they steal the um, the boat eats up a Russian submarine, right? Yeah, yeah, and it and it cuts to the Russians and they're like, "Where's our submarine, dude? Where's my submarine?" Yeah. Or I, I don't know any Russian phrases. Yeah, is in, in Russia. Asvidanya, <laughs> where's my where's my submarines summary? eat you? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, so it, it it goes to that, and then we have a nice uh, tender love scene with a gentleman and a lady, mm-hmm. and then he's like, "Oh man, the the phone's ringing. Uh, it's time to time to go to work." And then she's all like, "Oh, just just five more minutes." And then he's like, "No, no, no." It's like you gotta go. And then you know because I think at this point, like they said, we need Agent Triple X. Yes, Agent Triple X. Um, yeah, Agent Triple Headquarters. And um, Vin Diesel was unavailable. He was. Yes. Um, Ice Cube was unavailable. Mm. And so you think that this Michelle guy, Michelle Rodriguez, was unavailable. Yeah. I mean, she doesn't really have to do with the Triple X franchise, but you know. yeah. But you you can see like if yeah, I could see like if they wanted to do the female Triple X, it would and, be Michelle Rodriguez. Exactly. But no. So you you cut to this guy, and you're like, oh, there's our Triple X you know betting a, a, a nice lady you know really being like the the bond parallels yeah, yeah uh but nick twist he gets up she answers the phone she's agent triple x that is true and then she comes up uh, uh, and uh so she's being introduced as this uh this secret agent and then meanwhile kind of fast forward fast forward a little bit bond is also he's on a mission he's on a mission he's yeah or uh, he has to pull out yeah yeah because <laughs> he is uh betting a, a woman a woman who is not a secret agent and is just a woman well in a, i mean she's involved oh with, no she is yeah, yeah, she, yeah she's she involved is. with the with the with the opposite side yeah and uh long story short the gentleman triple x's love interest yes the gentleman comes to paths with bond in the fun ski sequence uh this this opening sequence to me is is incredible yes this is really good the, uh, the, the, yeah the music marvin hamlish uh did the, the music it's like the disco-y bond but it works so well uh the stunt i mean you have some of <laughs> more casually like bobbing up and down in front of a green screen oh yeah which yeah, is yeah. which is hysterical they, they edit around it uh quite well though but but I the thought. actual ski stunts yeah are great there's a really uh, one of my favorite moments from the opening sequence is definitely when bond quote-unquote uh does he turns around with this ski pole and it basically shoots. Yeah. Like it's a gun. Yeah. It's a gun. And that's I, awesome. And it kills, uh, Sir Hayward's Michael Pillington's yeah. character. So the opening sequence happens. And then basically this opens up where agent triple X, mm-hmm. uh, comes to the Russian leader. Yeah. What do you call uh, KGB Russian? leader. Yeah. KGB leader. And, uh, general, they, general Gogol. Yeah. And, uh, what I was really thrown by, uh, but I actually thought it was pretty, uh, surprising and and ballsy in a way, like how straightforward they're like, oh, we're gonna make the Russians these sympathetic co-leads. To it really speaks to how Broccoli and uh, Spaltzman at that time. You gotta remember back when Rush with Love, they didn't want to actually make the Russians the villains because they felt it was too political. And I, I feel like they they saw an opportunity to do something really interesting story wise. Yeah. 
and, and yes, the Cold War was still going on and there were still a lot of tensions, but you're right. It, it actually is a pretty big deal that they, they decided to go that route with the Russians in a sense that... Because uh, it's like it's like full on. Like I was expecting like, all right, now we're going to introduce maybe not our villain, but an, an opposing force. Yeah. And they get more explicit with the team up as the movie goes on. But I was like, oh, no, they're really just showing these people as like, they're, hey, listen, uh, you know, we're on this. We lost this thing. We need to figure it out. And yeah, one of our guys died. And that's kind of a bummer. And I was yeah. like, oh, this is pretty. This is pretty and cool. Especially, especially uh, for the character wise, you know, again, and, and I'll say that immediately. I'll go into more specifics about why. But I, I love in a sense how character driven this movie is at times. Uh, more so than really what we've seen. <laughs> That's the perfect addendum at times. <laughs> yeah, uh, and, and more so than we've seen throughout the Bond franchise. Because yeah. that really that that scene with Gogol and Anya is actually it is heartfelt and emotional, and you can kind of yeah. and, and it's great acting. I think all around where you can tell that like Gogol is actually very heartbroken that you know she's lost her lover, and yeah, Anya yeah. is you know kind of. Uh, a well, spy that, through and through where you know it, it she comes in and like you said you, they introduce her in a very sympathetic way uh, you, you've never seen a character like this in a Bond uh, mm-hmm. movie uh, my note that I wrote at this point in the movie mm-hmm. as we're, we're just in like the first like the first act of the movie and I said oh the sympathetic sympathetic Russians are great and I said cool female character with an asterisk and the asterisk read this will be fucked up later in the movie <laughs> That and, then, and I have more thoughts on that, but that also shows my little faith. Yeah, because <laughs> I thought the character was so well introduced that I was like, "There's no way they can keep this up." Um, and then pretty soon after that, we're also introduced to our bad guy, who I immediately said, "Was that supposed to be Blofeld?" Yeah, and then now I know it was supposed to be Blofeld. Yeah. Okay, I I I will make this statement. You know, especially recently with a lot of, like, you know, big-budget comic book movies, there's been a lot of talk about the villain problem Mm -hmm. in movies. Full disclosure, I don't necessarily subscribe to that personally. Yeah. I'm starting to think that maybe Bond franchise has a villain problem. I'm not going to disagree with you. (laughs) Because? Because everybody talks about the Bond villain, right? Everybody's like, oh, he's a Bond villain. Yeah. It's like, but... Very few of the Bond villains have really stood out. Yeah, and and like here's it's the thing. really it's like it's for me it's like the Bond villains that have stood out are the from the movies that we liked before. It's and I'm like, saying just thus far, just like thus we far. still have many like, movies. Like, to Goldfinger go. is like the main one in terms of actual a Bond villain that like. But see, I find as I'm watching these, like he's not even like the ones that kind of st- are stuck sticking with me. Is maybe the one from the last one a little bit maybe? Um, Scaramanga. Wait, was it Scaramanga from the last one? From no, no, no. Uh, the the black the black guy. Oh, oh, uh, Doctor Kanega. Yeah, yeah. Like maybe that one, but that's kind of more conceptually mm-hmm. iconically. Honestly, I've thought about Doctor No yeah. way more than any of these guys. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not like any of them are bad, but I mean, I've always thought like sometimes with comic book movies. At least you, for me at least, because I'm a big believer of you really don't need, I don't need these to be like these big characters to be, have like these arcs or anything. I think it's fine. You can just be like, you know, just kind of be like the the foil for the, basically the uh, impetus for 
the conflict to happen and just give him a personality. And I think in the moment, Scaramanga is good. So maybe I'll give Scaramanga the thing. But at least sometimes in comic book movies, you get the benefit of the villains kind of being a little bit defined by maybe like superpowers or like maybe in in Guardians, you get an alien guy. In the Avengers, you get a robot guy. In in, Mm -hmm. uh, Civil War, you get like a covert uh, special ops guy. And it's just like at, at this point, like, and it's weird because people i would say i more iconic are the the what's it called the henchmen, the, the henchmen. no yeah and, I agree. and, and really even then there's honestly been only, i only agree two. it's like yeah. the, the henchmen are the ones that like kind of stand out just yeah. because they do have the little weirdness and the personalities to him right like, yeah even like so we go back to living to die like t he you know with his clawed hand it's like that stands out a lot uh to an extent yeah uh, i don't know hey. what it is about them they're just not not sticking mm. as, as as much as i thought and maybe because it kind of comes down to they really all do kind of have similar plans. And I think, again, that's what I will give the credit to Scaramanga. It was uh, unique. Because it was a, like even, a unique and even, plan. And even Dr. Kananga, it's the same way. It's like yeah. Yeah, it's like a different way of going about it. Yeah. Did you know that Strongberg has a physical deformity? Uh, he has webbed hands. Oh, does he? <laughs> it's, the, it's, it's noted as the least noticeable. Like, n- you could ask major Bond fans, and like nobody knows. Is this why he wants to live in the water? I'm sh- I, I'm Is that must be why? I don't know. Um, so yeah, so, so we now, so Bond, uh, also gets his briefing, um, for the mission and and kind of, uh, they are led to, both sides are led to, to Egypt because, uh, they have basically, they realize that there is somebody has come up with a way to track their submarines. Mm -hmm. And the reason that uh, Stromberg killed the woman is that the woman sold off the plans, uh, to a high roller in Egypt. And now Bond and Anya are both sent to Egypt in order to find the microfilm that yeah. contains the plans and, and to try to figure out where their submarines might have gone. Now, Nick, this will be a two-hander in which I have something in two hands. Yeah. In one hand, uh, I will say that once again, Bond is showing such an incredible uh, attachment to exotic locales. Mm-hmm. And... There's a scene when they go into like the Egyptian ruins um, during the day. It's right before the Jaws fight scene with all the pillars and yeah. everything. That's incredible to look at, and it's just it's just such an amazing like you know they really are taking advantage of Bonza international globe trotting spy and yeah like and, and that's all great. On the other hand, is a question that I have for you, and maybe you forgot to tell me this story. Um, how exactly did they evacuate all the brown people out of? Egypt because for as much time as they spent in Egypt with the exception of a few maybe like extras like there was just so much cultural appropriation going on here like they go there and it's just all these white people in Middle Eastern garb and and it's like every single person that they talk to is just like a white guy and at one point the Russians and MI6 have made their base in the ruins of like a, a pyramid. There's fucking hieroglyphs on the wall. This isn't like the a novelty basement. This isn't this this is like Egyptian ruins. And he's just and fucking Eb's just setting up his desk there. <laughs> this is awful. And, and Q has his lab in there too. And then Q has his lab, and then there's so many other people testing out his things, and I, you know, I couldn't see their faces, but I'm sure they were all white too. Yeah. And- <laughs> well, the story will. Is that this was a British film production in the 1970s. Yeah, it's also fucking Egypt. (laughs) 
and I don't know, maybe it's like, you know me, over the past like year, I've been more aware Aware. of things like this. Yeah. And listen, I I think it's more of, you know, it's a cliche to say, but it is a product of the time. Yeah. I mean, I kind of take it that way. I mean, again, there's nothing, I don't think that there's anything egregiously offensive. This is just more of the systemic. Yeah passive aggressive things that people you you probably wouldn't think is offensive but in retrospect is kind of not the best uh but you know but i i still go back to just like the location is just so so beautiful yeah and Um, they they, again they they use it to the fullest effect uh, especially as you said in in the kind of the night pyramid scene uh and then the day pyramid scene both they 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 do a lot of great cinematography work and, and and do interesting things. Yeah. Create interesting action sequences. I mean, it's just the first stuff you do with Jaws in that sequence. Mm-hmm. In both those sequences, in both the, the Egyptian fight sequences where he's breaking, he's biting through the chain and he kills the guy, mm-hmm. you know, and even in the, in the, uh, during the day when, uh, you know, he, he, so eventually they, you know, they get the microfilm from, from Jaws and mm-hmm. there's, there's a whole yeah. thing. Which I would say like, I did, I did get a kick out of Jaws's comedic asides mm-hmm. i wish i i wish they leaned into it more uh, yeah. we'll definitely yeah. lean into it more you know i know where it goes yeah. i i know where his uh, character goes yes but uh, um but uh i do want to mention real quick yeah, before yeah, yeah. we get to that because I, I was just gonna say so jaws like there's some fun stuff where he's like he they're in a car and he's basically like lifting the car and ripping it apart yeah and yeah. like they really show off like his strength and his danger mm-hmm. uh and this is the first time where and, like, and the, bond the, is fighting like a physically more imposing character yeah. but i believe it yeah more so in this Cause, one because also there's a great moment where Bond punches uh, Jaws in the jaw, but you just hear the clang yeah. of the hand going against it. But I do want to mention real quick. Uh, so they have the scene; they're in like an Egyptian nightclub, essentially, mm-hmm. and that's like the first true meeting between Anya and Bond. Right, and it's a significant scene um, because there's a lot I like about the relationship between them. But it's also a significant scene is that it's the first time in the Bond franchise that it, across Bonds that Bond's past has been acknowledged. As, I, I I made mark of that. As, like as, I was like, as, oh shit. As Anya mentions that he was married once, his wife was killed. Uh, he, you know, so that's that. that's canon. That, that, it is canon. It yeah. is fact, or explicitly canon. It's explicitly rather. canon, and it, it's something that I I think. I'll talk about it a little bit later, but really gets into some of the what I like thematically about the movie, and, and, and some of it again that character moments that it explored a little bit later. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I definitely want to to mention, but I just wanted to mention that it is the first time mm-hmm. uh, outside of Honor, Majesty's Secret Service that it is mentioned that Bond had a wife who was killed. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to talk about Agent Triple X herself. Yeah, let's talk about Triple X. Um, uh, I think once again, I think that. The motivation in which the character is given, conceptually, the character is very interesting. I think the movie does go a lot of lengths to follow through on that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think she is great in the role. Mm-hmm. I think that she carries herself and is comfortable enough in a role. And, you know, and she never goes to the level of what's her name from, uh, you know, our favorite one. Pussy? The, no, 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 no. The one who um, was an idiot at the by oh, the end of the movie. Oh, uh, plenty of tools. No, yeah. not plenty. Sorry. No, uh, no, no. Plus, the, uh, uh, Tiffany Chase. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She, she never, she never got that, which I, I was happy with. I, I mean, for me though, I don't know if this is a product of them feeling like this is a James Bond movie, so he always needs to kind of be slightly more better. That's that's awful grammar. Mm. 
Um, which is why I think there's there's a couple scenes where she gets the upper hand on him, which you saw me watching it. I was like, that's awesome, yeah, because yeah. it's like there's a little bit of like I said, Bond's like just to be an asshole in this movie. So every time like he got kind of tricked, I, I liked it. But yeah. you know, so she's like this general or major or whatever in yeah. the, in in the in this army in the Russian army, and I I feel like they they still get to this level of they they kind of continue to make her useless at, at points or not as like you should be more competent than that I, I, like you, like her first introduction is two other guys beat up james bond which is fine it's like you know kind of like oh she's got like you know power over other people or whatever but then it's like she she doesn't know how to drive stick she can't drive the car and like the whole scene is just Bond making fun of her. Oh, she does. I mean, she's she's trying to figure out the plan though. I, I but even like the way that she was in the movie up until that point, like Bond's always doing something and she's kind of always tagging along. Like there was never like a other than like when she knocks him out with the cigarette gas, which was awesome. Mm-hmm. But like for this character who we're shown is like at, for the most part almost introduced as she's the female Bond. Right. And then I just felt like for so much of the movie, I was getting so little of that. I would assume that if that's your feeling, that I think that's part of it because it, it, the Bond producers, and I would say they would say are making a Bond movie, and yeah, you know, they're trying to kind of focus on the Bond character. Uh, I, I, I just I don't see it that way uh, Mm -hmm. personally. I I find Anya to be the most, definitely the most consistent female character we've had over the course of these films, especially. Considering where the movie goes. Well, the whole big drama thing, which it's very odd. I don't know if this is executed 100% well, but I'm in with the drama either way about you as the audience know the drama between Bond killed her boyfriend or whatever. So you're just kind of waiting for that shoe to drop. And while I don't think that 100% works, I do think what does work about it is they at least give you enough where these two have grown familiar mm-hmm. and comfortable with each other right. that by the time that shoe does and drop they, they work, the drama they, they, works better they work well together yeah and, and that scene by the way where they realize that and they have a conversation about that was one of those very uh poignant dramatic moments that we were talking wanna, about earlier i mean i was gonna wait to talk about but i, I want to talk about that scene yeah no go ahead because it's my favorite bond related scene yeah ever I mean, because, this is the first dramatic Bond scene in this franchise that I've bought. Yeah. Like, I was all in. I mean, this is what I want the quote to be this yeah. week, essentially. First of all, it's it's Moore's best performance thus far. Yes. Is, is him selling that. And it goes back to the fact that it is now canon that Bond lost his wife. Because that's that monologue that he has to Anya, when he's basically like, we both know that, you know, we're, we will face death on this on this job. It, at this thing, it's incredible. It's everything come together. It's incredible mm. writing, incredible directing, incredible performance, and it really captures home what can make the Bond character interesting. Yeah, is this I agree. guy that has been around the bush, around the block a lot of times, and has seen <laughs> he's, he's he's literally been around the bush. Around the bush. <laughs> oh, and, and it's just to me, it's just so great. He he's resigned to the fact that. You know, he. This is the life he lives. Yeah. It's It's one. You know, it's he, there are no connections to be made because you know every there's someone who's going to die. His yeah. wife died, mm-hmm. and Anya I mean, and Barbara Bach as well in that scene is perfect and plays it so well. It, it's just 
everything I love about movies is kind of in that scene, yeah. honestly. And it's 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 great. And I think for me, it demonstrates where I kind of feel about this movie because I think like this movie brings in a lot of that dramatic weight that makes it more in the favorable bonds. For me, I don't think that they follow through on it enough uh, as the movie goes on uh, for me. For one, there's a big kind of like tonal there's a big tonal sense in this movie where it's like one of those things where, you know, I I am famous for being embraceive of, you know, recognizing what the tone of of the of these movies what the, of these movies are. Um cuz I think in the past like I think Bond has been extremely self-aware, especially like in the last few movies, so the sillier stuff kind of plays a little bit better. Mm-hmm. Um I I think that this can somewhat feel uneven a little bit um because you have like the big like that big emotional scene and it ends with like well when this mission is over i'm gonna kill you and then you know it's kind of like well we'll see what happens Mm -hmm. when we'll cross that bridge when we come to it and then the next scene right after that is this comedic them being lowered down in a sub and they're like connected with each other and it's kind of played like "Uh oh oh i mean (laughs) how awkward is this yeah (laughs) and it's like you just found out that he killed the love of your Life, which is, I will acknowledge, is more of that's more of a me recalibrating yeah, kind of, and I, and I think that is for me my feeling about why I say like this movie kind of beat me down on what the Bond movies are a little bit is like they they do kind of for me occupy this weird cartoon world, this weird spy yeah. cartoon world, um, and I think it's for me because. Maybe this stood out a little bit more because that is the most dramatic scene mm-hmm. I think we've gotten, uh, save for maybe the murder at the uh, end of uh, Honor Majesty's Secret Service. Um, so I think that's why it stood yeah. out a little bit more of a weird juxtaposition yeah. for me. Uh, so we're approaching the third act, but before we get to the third act, uh, we got to mention uh, the, the big car chase sequence in this movie. Uh, because oh yes 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 because <laughs> this is again one of the reasons I would put this among my top bonds is that I this was love great this was everything awesome. about this car sequence yeah, let me if I were in the offices pitching this yeah. uh, this is probably what it would have gone like all right Mr Gilbert I got an idea for you yeah. okay Bond Bond movies need big car chases yeah right we need mm-hmm. one do we need one yeah we do you're gonna get one we do all right so this is this is what I'm thinking Bond's in the car he's, in the he's car. driving the car he's driving a car okay. okay. Somebody's coming after him. Guys on a motorcycle. Motorcycle, okay. Motorcycle, okay? Yeah. With a with a with sidecar. Sidecar? Side okay, okay, yeah. I got you. Yeah. All right. We don't put anybody in the sidecar. We put a missile in the sidecar. Yeah. Sidecar is a missile. Shoots after Bond, so he's being chased by a motorcycle. Okay, raise the stakes. He gets chased by another car. Some guys are in the car. They're shooting at him. Maybe we'll put Jaws in there. That Jaws guy, we'll put him in there. Okay? Uh, people like Jaws, yeah. Yeah, okay. So, well, not the shark. We're not putting the shark in. We're putting what, the, what, the guy Jaws. The, the guy, the, the one with the thing. Oh, the, the, okay, yeah, yeah, the, yeah, the mouth. Yeah. <laughs> so we put him in the car. Okay. So he's been chased by a motorcycle, car. Can't get any bigger than that. Wrong. You can. Okay. Helicopter. He gets chased by a helicopter. <laughs> and a helicopter can like shoot bullets, I think, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. The, the, the helicopter, it, it just chases it. It's chasing the car, chasing the car. Bond has nowhere to go. Where do you go? You can't go to the sky. There's a helicopter uh, in the sky. <laughs> Helicopter can see you on land, nowhere it can't see you, in the water. So what I pitch... As the future, uh, Henry Winkler was saying, the future show that doesn't exist yet, Arrested Development, take to the sea. Yes, take to the sea, car goes into the sea. I know what you're thinking, cars can't swim because they're not boats. Wrong, this car is a boat. Even more, it's a boat that goes underwater. Summer car, okay? (laughs) 
That's what we're going to do. Car goes in the water, goes underneath the water, shoots a missile up into the helicopter, destroys the helicopter. That's your chase scene. That is a spectacular chase scene. (laughs) It's the way it's directed to. (laughs) I give give Gilbert a lot of credit. I didn't really mention this in the You Only Live Twice episode because we had a lot more to talk about with that movie. But he has such a flair for the big and the epic and the visual nature. And I think he's fairly, he's probably one of the most successful bond directors from a visual standpoint, but just the chase scene and how perfectly it escalates. It goes from the motorcycle and the motorcycle falls off the cliff and that's great. And then the car comes and then jaws falls through a, a, a roof and he like brushes himself off. And then the, the big helicopter, it's just like the, the way that the helicopter comes in to frame, it just comes up from behind like the mountain and just starts chasing them. It's, perfect stuff yeah, yeah uh, and then i mean the, the submarine car is is awesome. a, is a perfect bond awesome. gadget and, yeah. and and the effects of it are so good really good uh the model work is so good just like an excellent just overall top notch so one of the best chase sequences and one of the best action sequences we've seen in, in any of the movies we've watched um i have a i have a brief note because i don't have too much in depth to say about the third act of the movie i think the third act of this movie is very good. I think it's very functional. I think it's very exciting. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I don't know if it quite organically fits in the movie that much because I think it's good. It's it's long-ish, mm-hmm. um, but they also made the very strange choice, which I know because they have to kind of do like the whole saving, saving each other at the end of the the movie. But they separate Bond and Anya. Yeah. Um, so they separate those two. And they kind of do like this team up with like the uh, the uh, submarine team that they've met up with and have since been captured by. Yeah. And it, it was just that felt a little bit weird to me because I mean I like the guy and I like the oh, premise I lo- and I, I lo- liked everything. I love the submarine captain here. Yeah. I think he's- I I just thought it was weird because it was one of those things where, and I and this bugs me in a lot of movies and not a lot of movies do this but I hate when this happens is like that seems like a pretty big character that they revealed fairly late in the movie and to me it works and i'll say this about the entire movie the production design is just so fucking good like that the the hangar or like the the big ship Mm -hmm. was just so awesome yeah and it just the it, it like and it was just so impressive to look at just the the mass uh the just the immense this huge boat which is really cool like you know our villain has his little throne which is obviously cool and i didn't even get a chance to mention uh, our villain's base, yeah, which is essentially the Legion Atlantis, of Doom. Atlantis. Well, yeah, it's it's Atlantis, but it is the Legion of Doom. Like it's the Legion of Doom base. It looks like the giant kind of like water spider in here. And then we learn like his whole plan is uh, that you know he's going to basically wipe out all humanity, humanity, and, and, and build an underwater society. Start anew under the underwater. Yeah. I, I just love the structure of the third act to me, and just like the assault on the base, and and like the the, the there's some good scenes of tension, like when he's taking out the nuke. Like the center of the nuke, that, it's all great. It's it's just well, I just think it's so well put together. It's so entertaining. It's so visually stunning. Yeah, from a production design, I mean, Ken Adam, you know, did an amazing job. Stanley Kubrick did an amazing job lighting the set. Yeah, it was, and it, oh, it just it all to me comes together in in that final sequence where Bond goes to to save Anya. Again, and, it's not a major criticism for me. Yeah. I just think if I had to have a criticism of yeah. it, it just felt like a little bit of a mini movie within a movie. I, I can see yeah. that. I, Only, mean, yeah. I, I think it to me it really works. It, and, it still and works as its own thing. And, and, I agree. And I, yeah. I just think there's so many little great moments in there uh, throughout the entire 
uh, and throughout the entire sequence. Yeah. And, and they really use the effect. And it's just, again, it's just like in You Only Live Twice, there's just a, a massive humanity of just, you know, the bad guys and all these submarine guys and Bond. Oh, and the like, chaos of and, it. And like, the actual yeah. chaos and people like dying left and right, grenades being thrown, mm-hmm. you know, guns ablazing. And then like at the end, like the whole thing's just on fire. Yeah. It just looks great. Yeah. And great ticking clock. He's got to go into the Legion of Doom to, uh, you know, rescue mm-hmm. Anya. And, yeah. you know, that is a, a final conversation with Jaws yeah. in, in, in a location that looks exactly like, uh, where uh, the uh, they go down the garbage disposal in uh, Star Wars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's exactly like that. I did think it's funny. <laughs> Our villain tries to kill Bond with a secret gun. With a secret gun. Not only a secret gun, Nick, but with a gun, the barrel, the length of the entire table. Mm-hmm. Like, which I'm like, okay, because they kind of rationale, like, it's like kind of like more of like a missile thing that's traveling yeah. down the thing. But then Bond also uses it on him. Oh, like the opposite way. Yeah, which is like, you don't need to do that. But it's it, fine. It, it basically <laughs> taking his dick out. Fair, fair enough. Uh, so just <laughs> I like it more now. Yeah. That's, that's great. Uh, so just a couple last things before yeah. we wrap up. Um, so Bond has a final fight with Jaws, which I think is also a lot good, of fun. Good, good. Uh, and at the end of the movie, you see Jaws swimming away. Yeah. In fact, they shot, they shot two endings. Uh, for Jaws, yeah. they shot one where he died, uh, but Cubby had an inkling that the character would be popular, mm. and in the previews it proved to be true. So they decided to cut in the ending where he survives. Yeah. So Jaws will live to see another Bond movie. I hope you're excited for that. I am. Uh, and then we get to the final scene of the movie, where Bond and Anya are on uh, one of Stromberg's basically little, uh, you know, lifeboat vessel things that's already basically designed to fucking yeah like it's basically like it's his it's his pleasure I, I, I it's ass- his leisure vehicle uh bond uh more gets to be the bond that points out a specific alcohol he yeah gets, uh, he's don perignon um but uh, anya picks up the gun and yeah. tells him the mission is over commander mm-hmm. and i i also love this whole thing i love Moore's look i love uh, the teasing of Anya, like I, I feel like it's, it's like you, you saved my life. I'm not gonna kill you, but I'm just I'm gonna make you sweat it out, mm-hmm. that kind of thing, and kind of get that upper hand. See, it's interesting because I didn't get that in the movie. This was the moment when I'm just like, okay, I just need to accept these movies for mm-hmm. what they are because yeah. I felt like because the last major scene they kept yeah. on building up this whole like you killed the love of my life. Well, I'm going to wait. Let me finish. Oh yeah, I, you killed the love of my life. I'm gonna kill you when I get the chance. And then I and I guess like the way it's executed just kind of feels weird to me because she's like, you're right. Like I guess she's kind of like sweating him out. And then is like, all right, well, do I get a last final request? Let's fuck. And then they fuck. Yeah. Well, I'm to, like what? <laughs> to me though, like part of it is still a thematic. I mean, this might be just me reading into it too much, and mm-hmm. I, I admit that. But part of it is that it's it's the growth of her character to what kind of Bond was saying before is that it's it's a part of the, the game. We yeah. were on opposite sides, you know, and it's like her growth of being like it's it's almost like kind of a romantic comedy where she's like she or, or, or like a Nicholas Sparks movie where she's been lamenting the loss of her life and that's all she's been talking about. And now she's finally gotten a chance to move on and realize there's more to life than, yeah. than him. Uh, but but the, to me, I don't know. I've always read into that into that scene where it's just like kind of her growth of maybe 
you know, realizing that like, mm-hmm. you know, he killed this guy, but like, you know, it, it was part of the mission. It's not, it wasn't anything personal or anything like that. Yeah. And, and that, and that they do actually care for each other. And I would say, you know, Bond got married and that's all fine. My OTP of the Bond franchise is Bond and Anya. I, I like the character. I, if I'm going to be, if, if I can allow to be completely honest and yeah. just respectfully, I, I do feel like it's a very severely underwritten moment for me. Like okay. I, I'm just like, no, it's fair enough. If, if that stuff is in there, which it probably could, maybe for me, it needs to be a little bit more textual because mm-hmm. I mean, especially, and maybe I'm being a little bit more specific because it is the women of this movie yeah. and you know, this I mean, it's, franchise it's, yeah, hasn't the, been the great with them. Has, yeah. I mean, it's not, perfect in this movie yeah but like yeah. it's again I, I still i will still say it's the best we've seen yeah. in the franchise so far and, and guess what like but at the end of the day the the bit the comedic bit where they uh oh yeah all the major all the leaders see them fucking in the boat yeah funny yeah. funny good stuff They're keeping the british end up so <laughs> it's all good stuff um my final thoughts on this movie this ranks very strongly right in the middle okay of things i've seen I think that there's a lot of great stuff that keeps it from being not great Bond. I think other Bonds have lasted, have more of an impact on me. Okay. Uh, but I think this is a completely solid Bond um, to watch. I think that this is definitely a great choice. Like, oh, if you want to watch a Bond movie and like you offer them uh, Spy Who Loved Me, I think it's like it's it's right there in the middle. And to me, that is a, that is a positive review. Yeah. And uh, to me, as I said before, it's become my all-time favorite bond film cool. I, I just think there's so much within the bond character and the action just that car chase sequence the submarine chase the third act yeah jaws everything about it just comes I, together i would not begrudge you for that because i think that this bond has it all mm-hmm. i think it, this movie does and just like, like all with, the tropes even all just the... The, the opening sequence just encompasses everything i love about the movie and yeah. it's just that even by itself all right, all let's right. wrap this up. Let's get to the aftermath. All right, so the film released on July 7th, 1977 uh, in London uh, and then not so long after worldwide. Uh, in comparison to uh, Man with a Golden Gun, this was a huge success and, and a return, triumphant return for the Bond franchise. Awesome. Making $185 million worldwide and back to form in the United States, $46 million in the United States alone. Uh, this film was very popular among audiences. Uh, it was, a, you know, for a, an incredible year that was 1977 in film. And uh, I do have a few reviews mm-hmm. that we have here. All right. So we have um, James uh, Baradell Needy okay. of Real Views oh. said that the film is suave and sophisticated. And uh, Barbara Bach is the ideal Bond girl, attractive, smart, sexy, and dangerous. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Danny Perry. I'll take that one. We, we've uh, talked about him a couple times here at the Bond podcast. Uh, the Bond Cell podcast. He uh, said that the Spy You Love Me is exceptional. For once, the big budget is not wasted. Interestingly, interestingly, while the sets and gimmicks were the most spectacular to date, Bond and the other characters are toned down. There's a minimum of slapstick humor. And they are more realistic than in other Roger Moore films. Moore gives his best performance. The couple is very appealing, equal in every way, and the film is a real treat. Uh, and then this uh, Janet Maslin of the New York Times did uh, find the film formulaic and a half hour too long, uh, but she mm. uh, felt that Moore's performance was very good. I mean, and I... Uh, she felt the film's uh, self mockery was refreshing. <laughs> uh, I don't know if I entirely agree with that one. I, I would maybe understand the maybe a half hour too long mm-hmm. um 
Again, I don't Which think I, it's I, I don't think it's that bad, but I, I, I could feel like see a, that. Honestly, I would say though, is almost a description you could give a lot of the Bond movies. Yeah, like a lot of them feel like you feel like if you just cut it down a little bit. Again, I I just think the key would have been like for me at least is to have another through character within that third act mm-hmm. other than Bond. Okay, like maybe if I had known the Captain a little bit more well, yeah. through the movie, I wouldn't have mm-hmm. felt like so. It just feels isolated a little bit, but uh, it, it, it's not a big deal. So, uh, just from, from a general standpoint, this was the best reviewed Bond movie since Goldfinger. Um, mm-hmm. uh, from cool. at that point, and it, again, it is a very personal favorite of the Bond uh, fandom. Uh, many consider this to be Roger Moore's best film. Uh, Roger Moore says it's his favorite film that he worked on, uh, and Cubby says it's his favorite of the Roger Moore films as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, people love Jaws, people love Anya, and people love uh, the uh, Lotus. And that's really uh, a lot of uh, everything about the movie is people something that people enjoy. But you know, none of that really matters, Nick. I think what really matters is who's Harrison Ford in this movie. Ooh, who's Harrison Ford in this movie? He's on his own little adventure in Egypt as Indiana Jones. Uh, and he he accidentally comes across the MI6 base. Yes, and, and just basically is like, this belongs in a museum. <laughs> love it. I love it. I'll accept that. Um. All right. Well, I mean, that's all I have to say about about that. So, uh, where are we gonna head on the next time on the Bond franchise? Uh, you, you you tell me. All right. It's well, the Bond I, franchise. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I just have one last little production note that's very interesting. If mm. you look, even on the Blu-ray that we watch, if you look at the end of the film, uh, it says James Bond will return in for Infinity your- War. No. Oh, okay. Sorry. I got it that on the It says James Bond will return in For Your Eyes Only. Mm-hmm. But the next Bond film is not For Your Eyes for Only. For British Eyes Only. If next Bond film is not For Your Eyes Only. Mm-hmm. We went to the sea, Will, and now it's time for us oh, to head. Oh, wait. Is Moonraker in, next? In the space. Oh, dude. Moonraker. Next time is Moonraker. Yeah. And we will talk about why they changed it from uh, uh, For Your Eyes Only to Moonraker. Okay. I bet you can take a good guess. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, Jaws are popular this year. Space is popular that year. Mm-hmm. For who knows what reason. Potentially. Mm. No, 1977, nothing major happened in that year. (laughs) Um, But, Nick, next episode will not be a Bond episode. No, it will not be. We'll be closing out the year, I believe, with a Godzilla episode. Mm -hmm. Um, From my recollection and my understanding... Probably not, won't be our strongest closing out a year, mm-hmm. but it may be a fun one, I think. Uh, okay. Um, a very interesting closing out the year. Yeah. And uh, that will be with the Godzilla film, All Monsters Attack. All right. Um, so, yep, that's it. Can't Are wait. all the monsters going to attack? We'll find out. Yeah, we'll find out. All right. So, that about wraps it up. Yeah. Oh, wait. Fight. No. All right. My catchphrase. We're done. I'm done. Okay. We're done. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Plugs. The unofficial Get catchphrase plugs. of the, movie, of the podcast. Right. Uh, email. Yeah. Bonzillapod at gmail.com. Twitter.com slash BonzillaPod. No, it's not. It, it's Ooh, not. I, almost I, got I it. I messed up again. Yeah. Twitter.com slash Bonzilla007. Facebook.com slash Bonzilla007. You can like and subscribe. iTunes and SoundCloud. Leave us a rating review. Give us some comments. Give us some love. Support our non-existent Patreon. Yes. Yeah. All right. Are we good? I I'm done. I am Nick. All right. And I'm Will. And I'm done. And uh, yeah, it's uh, Spy You Love Me. Yeah. Just keeping all my secrets safe tonight. <laughs>